0: Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then we were thought we were dreaming, our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongues sang for joy. Then it was said among the nations, "The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. Oh happy we, oh, how happy we were. Restore again our fortunes, Lord. Like the dry stream bed of Negeb. Those who sow in tears will reap with cries of joy. Those who go forth weeping, carry, carrying sacks of seed, will return with cries of joy, carrying their bundled sheaves. Father, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit down upon us this evening to guide our minds and our hearts. This time of learning, a time of seeking. We ask that our ears and our eyes and our hearts might be open to what you're doing in and around us. In each moment of our lives, as you call us back to yourself, help us to trust more deeply when things seem dark and we are in despair. Help us be able to fix our eyes on Jesus to find the one hope of our call. Father, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, each one of these people gathered here tonight comes to know your amazing love for them. And in knowing that, is willing and strong to follow and obey your word. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. so So make a quick note uh i was actually experiencing technical difficulties right before this and i think i know why my microphone did not record or that maybe that's a problem just for tonight but the audio was lost from last week so if you're gone um fortunately things are going to kind of slow down So I might have an opportunity to record that just so you can kind of know going along with the outline. But the outline's posted on the website. I have this right by me. I can see that in the lesser quality on the iPad of the recording, it's at least going to be recorded. Um, So stay to date or stay tuned for any updates, but I do have handouts here. If anyone was gone last week and wants to take a handout home. um, But in a quick recap, last time in the great story, uh, we began talking about the judge Joshua who leads Israel into the promised land after Moses had brought him to the precipice. He's the one that led their conquest of the promised land. And then we encountered that cycle of sin that happens in all of our lives often, I should say, maybe not all of our lives Some of you might be blessed uh, to not experience that, but I know at least in my life, I've experienced it, fall into sin. I cry out in supplication to God. He brings salvation. There's restoration. And then often during that time of surplus where I think things are going good, I fall and become self-reliant again. Lord, I can do this on my own. I don't need you, although I might not say that, but just intentionally by my actions, I say, I don't need you. I kind of think that I'm in control. And then because of my fallenness and my just inability, because we're all human beings, um, we recognize the limitations of our weaknesses and then call back to him. And in that moment, God, of course, is speaking to his people. Hey, it doesn't have to be this way you trust me if you continue to return to me we don't have to go through this cycle again so he continues to raise up the judges to hopefully teach them that lesson Uh, but they are hard to learn and eventually they request a king and that's where we began speaking about king david so on that front page Um, we see that they requested a king and the first king of israel was saul and he was anointed by samuel in 0.2 saul was unfaithful to the word of the lord And then Samuel is in charge to anoint David, a man after God's own heart, to be king after Saul. David is the one who actually brings the people together under a kingdom and becomes king. Uh, We covered the Psalms that he wrote and the importance that the Psalms play in the life of our faith. How God, through his word, even teaches us how he wants us to pray to him through these beautiful written prayers that have been sung and prayed throughout uh, antiquity. But then God also makes a promise with David that one of his offspring will rule forever. He renews this covenant to his people and makes this great promise that one of David's offspring will rule forever. And then we ended our uh, time with David with seeing him in his lowest moments and it was because of that lowest moment his sin with Bathsheba that we know that troubles in the water and that's where we pick up our story tonight but if you remember we painted David as a portrait of repentance he is one that shows us um, even when we fall that the Lord is merciful we go and seek him with a contrite heart and a humbled spirit God will be with us and forgive us of our sins, as we saw in Psalm 51. So if you want to flip over to page 2, at least in my copy, because I have some notes off to the side, that chart might be a little small. Sorry, I didn't have a full time to reproduce a timeline. Um, But hopefully you can at least kind of see this is the scope of where we're going this evening. We have a United Kingdom... Um, we know that David and we're going to talk about that just down there at the bottom. Um, there's a promise that because of his sin, the kingdom is going to split up and then it goes through. So we'll talk about that. But you can refer back to that later on. It has some key dates of when all these events that we're going to talk about tonight happened. But down there on the bottom of page two in 1.1, the breakdown of the kingdom And the breakdown of the kingdom and split into two spans all the way from 2 Samuel 12 to 1 Kings. So 2 Samuel and then 1 Kings is the next book that comes. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will bring evil upon you out of your own house I will take your eyes, your wives before your very eyes, and will give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your live wives in broad daylight. So if you flip over to page three, I think when we hear these words from the Lord, we can really look at them in two ways. Because they're talking proximately about what's going to happen. But then also we're going to see a remote fulfillment. So God's speaking both, here's what's going to come, but then ultimately, here is what's going to come. So there's a promise there that we're going to have evil in the house of David that's going to come out of it. There's going to be war. It's going to be at war within itself. There's not union. So approximately, the chapter is immediately after these words from our Lord david david's sons actually begin to try to depose their father they start jockeying for power Um, he's getting to be an older man so we have a fulfillment like yeah there's division in the house of david his sons are fighting with their father for who's going to take over the throne but then ultimately we see it's a promise that the tribes of the north will soon revolt and then break away to form their own kingdom so if we look at the nation as a whole there's a future fulfillment there. Uh, the promise that David's wives will be taken away. Uh, we could look just as in the fruit of a marriage would be the children. So the division of David's house will tear apart the familial bonds, but then ultimately this union of a united kingdom. that Some tribes are going to be taken away and actually fall into idolatry and begin to intermix and have marriages With the pagan gods of the nations. Because when the northern kingdom breaks away, they're gonna help, they're gonna look for help in places that are not found in God. They're gonna start going to other nations, they're gonna start going to other gods to ask for them for help. So immediately after this downfall, um, there at the middle, um, David's son Absalom so seeds of division, and then eventually leads the people in revolt against his father, sets himself up up in Hebron to be king of the nation, and there's a civil war, and there's some fighting. Um, Ultimately, though, Solomon, son of David and Bathsheba, is made heir to the throne. Solomon is known for his prayer for wisdom, so if you've heard of Solomon before, He's said to be the wisest man that ever walked on the earth. The queen of Sheba comes. Many of foreign dignitaries come to take counsel with Solomon. And it really stems from a prayer when Solomon's entrusted with a throne. God asks him, what do you want? You're a young man. What do you want in this moment? And he doesn't ask for great power. He doesn't ask for a lot of lands. He doesn't ask for the head of his enemies. He said, I'm just a man. I don't know what to do. Give me wisdom. And because of this humble prayer, God bestows on him this great wisdom. And he's the first one to build the temple, the ornate dwelling, uh, what we've kind of picked up from the beginning of creation and build it up, how God wants to build a space for himself to come and dwell. And so he creates one of these wonders of the world, and it's the temple in Jerusalem. And God, his presence, comes to dwell inside the temple. And the Lord visits Solomon and renews his covenant to the Davidic line, yet warns Solomon that if here his descendants are unfaithful, their house will be overrun and the people cut off from the land. So we get a foreshadowing of what we're going to cover. And then in 1 Kings 11, we ultimately get kind of the downfall of King Solomon. Down there at the bottom of page 3, King Solomon loved many foreign women besides the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, From nations of which the Lord had said to the Israelites, You shall not join with them, and they shall not join with you, lest they turn your hearts to their gods. When Solomon was old, his wives had turned his heart to follow other gods, and his heart was not entirely with the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon starts off really great but then he doesn't stay vigilant. And we're actually going to hear that at Mass this weekend. Um, Jesus tells a parable of the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. And he ends this parable with an exhortation to stay alert. And he says it numerous times, but uh, as we look at this breakdown of the kingdom, it should be a humble reminder for us to stay alert. Always be vigilant of our hearts, to see when things are creeping in because Solomon wasn't and it's spelled doom and gloom for the kingdom so there on the page four um, you can see the divided kingdom uh, but in first kings 11 11 to 13 So the Lord said to Solomon, these are the verses that follow what we just read, Since this is what you want and you have not kept my covenant and the statutes which I enjoined on you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. But I will not do this during your lifetime. For the sake of David, your father, I will tear it away from your son's hand. Nor will I tear away the whole kingdom. I will give your son one tribe for the sake of David, my servant. And for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen, from there we have separation. The kingdom splits in two, and Jeroboam, son of Nabat, son and servant of Solomon, is the first king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And then Rehoboam follows after David or after Solomon, and is the first king of the kingdom of Judah. So we're probably more familiar with that term. Uh, the northern kingdoms called Israel. They retain that title. And Judah starts to begin just to refer to itself as the house of David, um, Judah, the tribe that he has come from. And this started a rivalry between the two kingdoms because they're brothers. And I don't know about you. I actually didn't grow up with a brother but I assume that a brotherly rivalry is a little bit more uh, stronger than me and my sister's sibling rivalry, or maybe a little bit nicer to each other, brother and sister, but brothers can get in on on each other. Um, So there was a we-know-them factor to this relationship. We know who they are. Judah has to be a little slighted that their brothers broke off, And went to look elsewhere for their home. And of course, Israel was looking to say, We know better than them. And there was actually a little bit of a dialogue right before, um, just in the condensed nature of retelling this story. The northern tribes actually asked the southern tribe, Hey, you're taxing us a lot, you're putting us to work. Would you relent? We are brothers. Are we not? And King Rehoboam was not willing to relent, and that's ultimately what precipitated the breakoff. But not only is there just a division of family bonds here, God's holy people, his holy nation, ultimately, what this rift does is sow the seeds of exile for both kingdoms and one of the most notable rivalries between the two arose and that is of worship. So at the bottom there of page four, we have recounted the actions of Jeroboam that really began the whole process of this exile. Jeroboam thought to himself, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the hearts of this people will return to their master Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. The king took counsel, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, you have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods of Israel who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He put one in Bethel, and the other in Dan. This led to sin, because the people frequented these calves in Bethlehem, or in Bethel and in Dan. He also built temples on the high places and made priests from among the common people who were not Levites. So one thing we've kind of sped past, but maybe we've already intuited. God has given a plan to his people on how he is to be worshipped. That's why he dedicates this temple I well, we made mention of Solomon dedicating this temple, the space where God's going to come and dwell. So Jeroboam says, "I know that God's temple is in Jerusalem, but I can have my people who have this knowledge going there. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a little workaround. We're going to keep them on our side of the border. and if that means we kind of have to stretch, How we are to worship, that's okay, because political stability is better than true worship and true living. So we're going to set up these false shrines to God. So he makes images to represent God um, and says, hey, here is your God, O Israel. And it's because of this that ultimately they're led into exile. So, we know that there is going to be bad to come. And uh, if you wanted to go and learn more about the other kings, so we're going to skip. Those are the only two kings of the divided kingdoms, Israel and Judah, that we're going to mention. Um, but the books of 1st and 2nd Kings in the Bible chronicle the reigns and the deeds of individual kings in both the northern and southern kingdom. And then there's other people in the midst of these books that arise. And it's not just about the kings. So we have a whole new type of figure that arises in sacred scripture during this time. And that is the role of the prophet. So I want you to think for a moment what is is a prophet first? And then what does a prophet do? Just think for a moment what is a prophet? And what does a prophet do? So if we're having a no KWL chart here, this is the time we're going to state what do we know about prophets. So what, do you, what does a prophet, or what is a prophet, and what do they do? Um, a prophet is a person chosen by God to spread his word to people. Yeah, okay, great. What else? What else do prophets do? They also go to people and um, not condemn them, but admonish. yes, that's the word, admonish them for their sins to get them to repent and turn back. Yeah. Okay. Great. What else do prophets do? Don't prophets tell the future? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. The but... prophets. Yeah. yeah. This is at the point where I'm not really like making any comments like, yeah, you're 100% right. This is in our exploration stage. So um, that's why I threw out there because I think that maybe prevailing sense in our world today, if you said the prophet, um, someone who tells the future, right? We can all. So um, great. So we were considering what is a prophet? What do they do? Um, to help us understand, I actually have an activity this evening, um, so we need to pair up, and you're going to do kind of blindfolded drawing. Oh. So uh, what might work best is in our chairs. You know, you're going to have one person at the table because they're going to need to draw. The other person will be behind them and just turned around so you guys can't see each other. It might look cheap, um, but the person who is going to be doing the drawing what you need to do is you need to listen to the person describing what you are to draw. So they'll have an image and they're going to tell you, hey, okay, so you can't say what it is, but maybe make a curved line in the middle of the paper or draw, like from that line, go down and make another one, okay? It might be helpful as you describe it. You could use some geometrical shapes. So, hey, first draw a big oval in the middle of the paper. And then from there, draw a triangle at the bottom of it. Get what I'm saying? So you'll have five minutes to listen to the person describing. And then you're going to do your best to have our drawing. So take a moment to pair up. And uh, then the person who is going to be um, the one with the image, come see me and I'll get you your supplies. The person who's drawing can just remain in their seat. Are we at a spot where you feel like, okay, I kind of know what this yeah. is? Okay. Okay. So someone... Or actually, let's have all of our artists hold up your beautiful drawing overhead to see. Great. What were we drawing? A bird. It was particularly uh, a raven. Because as I mentioned, um, interspersed in the Book of Kings here is... The figure of Elijah, who follows somewhat in the footsteps, although there were prophets. Um, We heard of one last week, Nathan, and he's the one that rebuked King David. Um, But they follow in this prophetic tradition, but it becomes more of a formal role. Uh, And So in Elijah's story, he's fed by ravens um, as he's hiding out from the king that he is called... To account. Uh, but this activity really works on two parallels. So one, for the drawer, what do you need to know in order to be successful? What was the experience like? What were the most helpful clues? Um, what was... Something that allowed you to actually begin to say, uh, maybe I know what I have going on here. I mean, communication. Communication. You had to listen. Listening and being able to ask for clear, if I didn't understand them. Their instructions. Their instructions? Very clear to the point. Simple to, you know, be guided. Anyone else? For our describer, what made it challenging or what made it easy? Yeah, go ahead. to describe mm-hmm. what I was trying to get across to her because I've, I've seen it but yet she hasn't so it's like describing ice
1: cream to someone who's never tasted mm.
0: ice cream okay. uh, it was easier to describe it to him because he knew the difference between left and right and like one inch and two inches and I teach him it, and they don't know those things so uh. it was being able to describe it to someone who has The same depth of knowledge. Oh, that's great. Adapting on the fly. So if they don't get it exactly right, you have a vision and then they have a vision, then you have to meet in the middle, reconcile differences in thought. Yeah, good. So I didn't put it down. There's an interesting anecdote snippet in the story of Moses, where the spirit comes on 70 people gathered, and 72 actually received the spirit to are outside the camps. And they come back and they're prophesying, and speaking the word of God, helping Moses in his ministry. And people start complaining, well, they weren't with us. Like, how can this be? And Moses has the quote back to them, like we're not all prophets and able to speak the word of God. And so this activity really works on two levels for our understanding. God speaks to us. The prophets are the one who relays us the word of God. And we can relate to them in our humanity. To be like, sometimes it's hard to know what is the voice of God? What is my voice? Or what is the voice of the world or the evil one? The prophet's the one who takes to heart that prayer, centers back on God, and is able to discern that quiet voice that speaks to them. And then another way that we can look at this is the prophet speaking to the people. Sometimes they're heart of heart. Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they're able to know and have shared common experiences or remember, oh shoot, yeah, I have to do this. Sometimes they'd rather say, no, get out of here. We don't want you around. And they stone or throw the prophet out of town as we read throughout all First uh, and Second Kings and then in the lives of the prophets. So what does a prophet do? They might tell some prophecy that's going to have a future fulfillment but their primarily role is i remember what you said florence but you had a pretty good like definition oh they're a person chosen by god and sent out to spread his word yeah so a prophet is one who is to teach and proclaim god's word in a sense not in a bad way of like finger pointing. We've talked about that word metanoia or repentance. Um, Sometimes it does saying like, hey, you done screwed up. God's calling you to be faithful. But often it's just to call us to conversion, to reorient our lives and recenter them back on God. So let's just explore a little bit more about the prophetic office on the top of page five there. So immediately after Jeroboam, established his altars in Bethel and Dan, the south and north poles of the northern kingdom, we do have new figures arise from among the people. Immediately, as we follow the chapters in First Kings, there's this man of God from Judah, and he receives the word of God and is sent to Jeroboam in Israel and cries out against the false places of worship that have been established. Now, we actually enter into the scene the role of the prophet. And so then we actually, after we begin to flip through these books, we encounter more books in the Bible of the prophets. Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah. So at the front of your handout, you actually have a real picture, not a rendering, of Isaiah that's painted up in the church. So When you enter in, you can be like, hey, we talked about what he did. What was his role? This is who Isaiah is. We're going to hear a little bit of him from Scripture here a little bit on. But in 2.1, there in the middle of page 5, we have the prophetic office explanation and definition from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The people needed education and faith and conversion apart. This was the mission of the prophets, both before and after exile. The people needed education and faith and conversion of heart. This was the mission of the prophets, both before and after exile. Elijah is the father of the prophets, the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Elijah's name, the Lord is my God, foretells the people's cry in response to his prayer on Mount Carmel. So we're not going to talk about Elijah specifically. He's one of the prophets that we know of, but doesn't have any recorded words. Um, but he is a figure in 1st and 2 Kings. He has a understudy Elisha who uh, takes and has a double reception of his spirit. Um, but Elijah is this blazing figure that calls God's people, particularly in the north, to come back to him. And he's one that encountered God face to face. So they're in the middle in paragraph 2584 of the catechism. And their one on one to one encounters with God. The prophets draw light and strength for their mission. Their prayer is not a flight from this unfaithful world, but rather attentiveness to the word of God. At times, their prayer is an argument or a complaint. But it is always an intercession that awaits and prepares the intervention of the Savior God, the Lord of history. The prophets have a big weight on their shoulder because they have this role of being mediator of God's word to man, but then also carrying the burden of man back to God. And so During this time period, especially during exile, because no one necessarily likes to hear bad news. Most or all of them are going to experience persecution, or most or all of them are martyrs. Yes. Oftentimes, because of the fickleness of our heart, we don't like to hear bad word, bad news delivered to us, Um, but it's really the prophets that are, who are for us. They're the ones that carry our burdens even when we cannot see them and they go and intercede on our behalf for God, or to God. 2.2 there. I just have listed some of the prophets that you may or may not have heard of. Um, Elijah and Elisha are defenders of the true faith in Yahweh and call the northern kingdom back to the Lord. Amos is the first prophet whose words we read and study there in letter B. Beginning with Amos, uh, prophetic literature appears. The major prophets, this doesn't mean that they're More or better than the other prophets. They just wrote more. So their books are a little bit longer. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. The minor prophets, they have shorter books in the Bible. Less extensive writings include Amos, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Obadiah, Joel, and Jonah. And we can think, hey, there's some great names for future progeny. In here, as well as some names that we're probably uh, aware of and recognize. The last paragraph there on the bottom of page five just describes the heart and the essence of the prophetic call. They, being the prophets, also have a strong sense of the tradition of the covenant, which looks upon all Israelites as sharers in the blessing of the Lord and thus entitled to be treated with justice. The prophets contributed a powerful factor to Israel's idea of itself, namely the conviction that they are not God's people unless they are morally upright. From the prophets on, Israel considers the ethical dimension to be as important as the worship of Yahweh's name and cult. So this is one of the fruits of the exile, is to recognize... Just as we talked about with Abraham. It's not just about saying or being in name only. It involves following through with this name. Just because they're God's chosen people, if they're unfaithful to the God, they're unfaithful to God, then they won't receive the blessings of the covenant. God asked them to follow after me. He wants their whole heart not just a shell of themselves. And because the peoples of the northern and southern kingdom were not living that, they were saying one thing and doing another, they get carried off into exile. So on the top there, page 6, the fall of, the, fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, um, there's this country, this peoples, the Assyrians, and they become the strongest empire in the Near East. I'm going to summarize this just so we don't have to read it um, necessarily line by line. Um, Their rise to power really disrupted the alliances, the powers in the Near East. And people really started becoming afraid. You have this new power on the horizon and they're coming to overtake us. And both Israel and Judah fought against Assyria and Israel, in their last fight against Assyria, allied with pagan nations and were defeated. And Assyria comes in and destroys the northern kingdom in seventeen or 722 BC. Three-fourths of the lands are taken away. The peoples are taken away. And when they're taken away, the northern tribes never come back as a people. So maybe you've heard the term before, the lost tribes of Israel. This is what it refers to. The people of the north, when they're taken away into captivity by Assyria, um, they begin to intermix with the Assyrians. Those who are left kind of um, reject their identity. They really begin to associate with the pagan nations around them. And we end up getting a smattering between worship of the true God mixed with worship of God of the nations. And this is one of the reasons why, if you've ever read the Gospels, and you're like, there seems to be tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's solely because of this reason. Because the peoples of the Northern Kingdom that were left behind end up becoming the Samaritans. And when, spoiler alert, the Jews get taken off into exile but return back, they hold true faith, and they see these people that were left behind, and they look at them and they say, bro, what happened? Like, what, what did you misunderstand? Why are you doing this? And so there's really this disdain between the two peoples. And it all comes from the fall of the Northern Kingdom. The prophets in letter C there at the bottom of page six, uh, Amos and Hosea particularly speak out against the setting up of those false shrines in Israel, in Bethel, and in Dan, and ultimately this false worship as to why the Syrians come and take the northern kingdom off into exile. Uh, Judah, during this time, was able to avoid defeat or subjection, and... (coughs) The prophets really render much of this because there's one faithful king, one of the most faithful kings in all of the Southern kingdom of Judah, King Josiah. And he created this strong religious reform and brought the people back uh, to true faith. But ultimately those reforms wouldn't last. And in a few years, the Assyrians would be replaced by the Babylonians. So they come from Babylon, that's modern-day Iraq. Um, And the Babylonians over there on 3.2 overthrow the Assyrians. And the prophets during this time that really play a role are Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. And they're the ones that say to the Jews, the people of Judah, because you are unfaithful, here is what is going to happen to you you too are going to experience this exile. The people of Judah were taken into captivity and in waves and were employed in the Babylonian palaces and industries. And this happened between the years 587 and 582 B.C. We'll listen here to the words of Jeremiah, of his instructions, because this exile into Babylon was for not for nothing. There's great fruit that came out of it. And one of the things of God's providence, there in 3.3, that should say, in the middle of page 7, is that the Persians come to replace the Babylonians and create a far extensive... Um, empire and they were more favorable to the peoples that they conquered as they went forward um, in conquering they actually let conquered peoples return to their native lands so king cyrus actually gives money gives permission to the people of judah to return back and rebuild their homeland and it was during this time that the Jewish people actually began to carry out the name of God to the nations. So Ezekiel, Daniel, and Obadiah are some of the prophets at work during this time. They're there to give messages of hope, give messages of understanding of what's taking place during this time. And they're the ones that ultimately say, God is going to restore his faithful. He's going to bring vindication. So in 15 15- 539, King Cyrus grants those returns to the Jews in Judah. And we have this return chronicled to us in the books of Ezariah and Nehemiah and in the prophetic literature in Haggai and Zephaniah at the bottom of page 7. So when they return, there's fruit that actually comes out of it. The experience of that prophetic call there at the top of page 8 and 4.1 to conversion and failure to yield to them created a yearning for understanding. The prophetic witness in and after exile coupled with the witnesses beforehand actually refined their hearts. And so after that, they recognized, hey, we all have a part to play we are all individually responsible for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. And we got to be righteous in letter A there. And B, there's a deepening understanding that God's the sole power that actually controls everything. He is one to use his people for blessing. He is one to use the pagan nations for his purpose, as we hear um, often in Isaiah and in Jeremiah where through providence, through his plan, he uses them to bring about conversion. We have an understanding of the role of the prophet and priest in suffering as with the people, as well as offering sacrifices for the sake of the people. And in this time, there's a merging, a greater merging of understanding of priest-prophet one who is to suffer. There begins in letter D to have a new hope of a new covenant that's going to be the definitive covenant. God's going to finally set things right. And then in letter E, the faithfulness of the people, this remnant and its proclamation in the book of the law and the word of God would reestablish Jerusalem and Zion as the center of the world and bringing about the conversions of all people to right worship and living under God. And we really get a sense there at the bottom of page 8 and 4.2, an understanding of incarnational theology, that God wants to come and dwell with his people. So we probably have all heard the last verse of this snippet from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. But the instructions beforehand are kind of what precipitated this understanding of the peoples in exile, that God is at work even when it seems dark. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their fruits, take wives and have sons and daughters, Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters. Increase there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you. Pray for it to the Lord, for upon its welfare your own depends. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not be deceived by the prophets and diviners who are among you. Do not listen to those among you. Who dream dreams, for they prophesy lies to you in my name. I did not send them, oracle of the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only after 70 years have elapsed for Babylon, will I deal with you and fulfill fulfill for you my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know well the plans I have for you, oracle of the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for woe. So, as to give you a future of hope. So, that's the verse that you maybe have heard before. I know the plans I have in mind for you plans for your welfare and not for woe. But Jeremiah is delivering these words to people being taken off into slavery and God's instruction to flourish there. Be a blessing. You weren't being a blessing beforehand is what Jeremiah follows up with or precedes this before. You were being unfaithful. So now in this time of being stripped away, return to our relationship, return to your deepest identity, and fulfill your mission, relationship, identity, and mission. And it it should give us hope for ourselves that even in dark times, with trust in the Lord, he's going to bring good out of it. And when we do that, the word of God actually gets carried to the nation. So there on the top of page nine, we have from the second part of Isaiah, these instructions, this great hope of God's ultimate plan for all peoples. The foreigner joined to the Lord should not say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. For for thus says the Lord to the foreigner and eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. I put that in brackets just because there's uh, further parts that was condensed in the scripture. Um, But for us, and considering this point, we want to just focus on foreigners. Who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give them in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, an eternal name, which shall not be cut off, will I give them, and foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without profaning it and hold fast to my covenant, them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So it was actually in the moment of the exile where God's name got carried. And in the prophetic literature where they come to have an understanding, let's be evangelists. These people too can have a partaking and God actually wants to make his house a house of prayer for all people. So we have this developing understanding. When you get sent out, be a blessing. And with the people you're around, spread the word of God. Spread his name among the peoples. Because he wants to bring all people back to himself. And how ultimately he's going to do that is recalled in Jeremiah 31, 34. See, days are coming, oracle of the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke my covenant, though I was their master, oracle of the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, oracle of the Lord. I will place my law within them, and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will no longer teach their friends and relatives, know the Lord. Everyone from least to greatest shall know me, oracle the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and no longer remember their sin. So we even have in here God speaking to us that, this relationship of the covenant is going to become inscribed in our hearts, going to become one with us. At least in my Bible that I usually use for prayer, the sub-note that ties us back into Jeremiah is a tie-back. So if we go and look at the Last Supper's, It's pointing back to here where Jesus gives and says, this is my body. This is the blood of the new covenant. Just as we talked with Chad, with Moses and the bread from heaven. So God's going to give us a definitive way where he comes to dwell with us. comes to actually write his forgiveness and his knowledge and his love in our hearts. And then there's promise of it. So Joel's writing to the people returning. It shall come to pass. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even your male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So in... Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter actually recalls these words in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So during this time of exile and after it, God's laying the foundation and telling exactly, here's what to look for. Here's the signs. Here's the ultimate fulfillment of what I will do to act. And then we see it bring to completion And the way that Jesus establishes the new covenant and the way that God pours out his Holy Spirit on Pentecost to fulfill and to initiate and to make this new covenant a reality. And so it's during this time, the fruits of the exile, we get in 4.1 there, you'll have to turn back to page 8, but we get a surrender to the Lord. We get an understanding of what it means to surrender to his lordship how he works in the world, but then also we get a full understanding that God is with us and he comes to dwell in us and he wants to be one with us. On the back page, last thing for tonight, we have another figure there of our murals. Couldn't make it really nice because the lighting in there, Um, but as you walk around, you'll eventually see Queen Esther And we have her story recounted for us in sacred scripture. She's a Jew, person of Judah, living in the Persian Empire, who became queen and saved her people. So the king wanted to, um, well, actually he was favorable, but he had a person in his court that was unfavorable towards the Jews. Because of this, he persuaded the king to have them all exterminated. And Esther... By the prodding of her relative Mordecai, um, ends up converting the heart of the king of Persia to her people, and ultimately shares the the name of the Lord and what it means to be faithful to the word of God. And so she's a portrait of courage because you go and read her story in sacred scripture and we should draw strength to say, even in the midst of a foreign people even in the midst of times that seem uncertain the lord can be trusted and when we trust in him even though as we look to some of the martyrs death is not the end of the story god saves his people living in persia at that time but You can look in the book of Daniel, which also occurs in here. Maybe you know the story of Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, or Adshak, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that story. They get thrown into the fiery furnace, and they even say, hey, look, even if God doesn't save us, this doesn't nullify that he's God of the universe. He's the only God. And Esther approaches it in the same experience. So she really is a portrait of courage for us in times where we're uncertain. And as you seek and you discern, you're still trying to figure out what exactly is going on, what are you being called to in joining the Catholic Church. She should be one that you look and say, Okay, let me consider your word, Lord. And if I find this troubling, I can look towards her and I can draw courage. So here was her prayer in the middle of page 10 Oh, my Lord thou art thou only art our king help me who am alone and have no helper but thee for my danger is in my hand ever since i was born i have heard in the tribe of my family that thou O lord didst take israel out of all the nations and our fathers from among all their ancestors for an everlasting inheritance That Thou didst do for them all that Thou didst promise. And now we have sinned before Thee, and Thou hast given us to the hands of our enemies, because we glorified their gods. Thou art righteous, O Lord. Remember, O Lord, make Thyself known in this time of affliction, and give me courage, O King of the gods, and Master of all dominion. She recognizes where they have failed and makes this faithful cry for mercy to God. Later on in the book, but we find that the Jews who are consigned to annihilation by this thrice accursed man and not evil are not evildoers, but are governed by the most righteous laws and sons of the most high, the most mighty living God who has directed the kingdom both for us and for our fathers in the most excellent order. Therefore, post a copy of this letter publicly in every place and permit the Jews to live under their own laws and give them reinforcements so that on the 13th day of the 12th month, Adar, on the very day, they may defend themselves against those who attack them at the time of their affliction. For God, who rules over all things, had made this day to be a joy to his chosen people instead of a day of destruction for them. Because of her courage, as we just read, ultimately the Persians come to have a greater understanding of the God of lowercase gods, in case anyone was scandalized by that. But he's the true and living God, the Most High. Now, In the Near East, just for a little context, uh, they have a greater understanding of this pantheon, but there's a recognition of God is God. And so they're not at the point to ready to stake the claim, this is totally true, but they recognize that the God of the Israelites, the God of the Jews, has done wonderful deeds. And because they go out and they spread his name, they actually bring people back to them. They bring back people back to God. they bring people back with them so that there's these people waiting in the time of our Lord to be joined. and we see in this precursor the first and uh, the biggest evangelization that really comes to the nations. So we'll just end relate relationship identity and mission. We're still in one holy kingdom, but next week we have a new covenant that we'll encounter by our Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska on Apple iTunes or on Podbean and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.